So like Mark said, we recently received the findings of an investigation of our church regarding sexual abuse allegations that took place here, uh, spanning in over a decade, tragically, 1995 to 2006 is when it took place. Uh, we, took, we take uh, seriously every finding of that report, and, and in particular, the applications of that report. And one of those applications was directed uh, to me and states this. As TCPC has been faithful in keeping the congregation informed... We recommend a sermon be presented to the congregation by the pastor regarding the issues surrounding abuse. And so this sermon is the application to, uh, to that report. But let me be clear, I don't want anyone to think that I'm only preaching this because I was told to do so. Um, I'm preaching this because it is right to do so. And the reason why I say that is because I... I fear a growing, what I would call weariness within our congregation with all of this. You know, we've been through a lot as a congregation, and in particular, um, that decade held a lot for our congregation, and um, more than even this. And there does seem to be this sense of, come on. This was a decade ago. The pastor's long gone. We've been dealing this now for a year. Can we just move on? My gentle yet firm answer to that is no, we cannot. If your year was like my year, then you would know why we can't just move on. Because I have been living in the heartbreak and the devastation of this tragedy. And I know how vindicating and hopefully healing this sermon will be for some. And if for no other reason, it is worth that. Perhaps, that is to say, perhaps you, members of this community, don't want to hear this, but you know who does? The victims. Only seven of them were willing to to be interviewed for the investigation. But an astounding 41 participated in the anonymous online survey to share their experience. And I know for a fact that there were still others whom even that, an online survey, was too painful to participate in. I spoke with one mother whose son wouldn't talk to me and would not take part of the investigation. Her son was abused um, here at TCPC, and, and she told me that her child's life will never be the same since he attended TCPC because of what happened to him here and that every day he lives with it. And so, no, we will not just move on from it because the victims are not afforded that luxury. We will, of course, get back to the normal rhythms of church life. I think that is good and necessary. But we will never move on and tie a neat bow on this. It will remain a historical failure of this institution that we will continue to recognize when we tell our story. And if 50 years from now, a victim has the courage to come forward and wants to revisit this with us, then our church will be ready and eager to jump right back into it with them. It is open-ended. At the very least, though, it deserves one Sunday set aside to preach on the topic. 
where to turn for a passage. As I said, I think in God's providence exactly where we are in our sermon series in the book of Acts. I thought about choosing a different passage, maybe one that is more commonly associated with uh, sexual abuse, and there are many of them. But as I looked at where we left off in Acts 2, I think providentially it speaks very well to the topic of the day. Because what we see as a result of the revival at Pentecost that we've been studying is a new culture emerge, what I'm calling God's counterculture. And there are two verses here, which gives me only two points. We will see counter-individuals and a counter-institution. Let's start with what I mean by counter-individuals. Recall briefly where we are. Peter has preached the first sermon um, on the day of Pentecost, the first A New Testament sermon and his invitation is that we are to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. If you are at all familiar with evangelical Christianity, then that language should sound very familiar. But it doesn't stop there. One of the flaws of said evangelicalism over the past decade is it does stop there. If you had the repent and be baptized conversion experience, then that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. But this is a woefully deficient view of the Christian life. The Christian life is no less than an initial conversion to Jesus as Lord, but it is certainly much, much more, and that more is a continual submission to Jesus as Lord, which produces a new identity over your life which runs counter to this world. And that is where Peter goes with this far less quoted verse from the story of Pentecost. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So obviously there was much more said here than is recorded, but the greater point is that Peter leaves revival and immediately goes into discipleship of those newly converted. And we are given one statement that sums up the theme of his instruction, save yourself from this crooked generation. Peter conceptualizes the Christian life still with the language of salvation that he's been using, but now in a different way. Not eternal salvation through Christ, but practical, pragmatic salvation from what he describes as this crooked generation. That language, crooked generation, may come across harsh to our modern ears, which I understand. But this is a common idiom of the day to describe the corruption of this world as we know it. It's crooked. Simply meaning, it's not as it should be. That is to say, something is off with this world. And I don't think I'm going to find anyone who disagrees with that assessment, even if they don't like the word crooked. And the point, simply put, is that Peter is saying, now you who confess Jesus as Lord have a responsibility to save yourself from a world that is crooked. Very simple, he's talking about holiness here. A life of holiness. A life of set-apartness 
literally is what holiness means. Peter's saying, you now must be different from this crooked world. Now, let me be clear. This is important whenever you talk about holiness. This is not isolationism, which is often the trap of those who seek holiness. Rather, we are those in and among the world whose holy conduct bears witness to another world. It's the difference between a subculture and what I'm calling a counterculture. A subculture views holiness as creating an entirely separate culture which exists as kind of this sub-genre of the world. That is to say, it mimics the world only with kind of the Christianized spin on things. Christian music, Christian films, Christian literature, Christian business. Some most extreme cases, you form your own little Christian community or town. The problem with this is that it turns it into a cleaned up, cheap imitation of the world that nobody takes seriously except those who inhabit the subculture. That is not what Peter is talking about at all here, and that will become very apparent as we move through Acts. Instead, he is talking about a counter option to this crooked generation. Something not positioned as a subcategory of this world, but quite literally a rival world. A people in and among this crooked world embodying the straight pathways of God. A people who inhabit the culture bearing witness to and offering up a counterculture. And again, we will see that happen in the book of Acts. But there's something very important here, something else very important here to see, particularly for us and the purpose for our day. Notice Peter does not say, save yourself from this crooked world. Rather, he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. You see, in the ancient world, they thought generationally, and most traditional cultures still do. And I think they're right to do that. Because every generation brings with it its own unique forms of crookedness. The doctrine of the fall is a blanket statement of the sinfulness of humanity, but the fall manifests itself in more nuanced ways depending upon culture and historical context, which means that every generation brings with it unique idols and, dare I say, evils. So it's not just a call to have this countercultural identity, it is a call to have an identity which counters the unique historical t- context of which we inhabit. That looked different for the early church than it does for us, which brings us to the topic of our day. Sexual dysfunction and immorality has been a problem since the fall. There's no denying that. But it is a unique issue, perhaps the issue of our generation. To use the language of a text. I want to be very clear that sexual misconduct in every form, including sexual abuse, of course is nothing new. I say that because perhaps there are older friends among us that went through the trauma of abuse and Times pass before we really talked about these things. Nevertheless, I think, it's, I think it's appropriate to say that we are 50 years into an experiment known as the sexual revolution that promised sexual freedom and has yielded sexual bondage and enslavement. When in the late 50s, Hugh Hefner shattered the paradigm of historical sexual ethics 
and supposedly liberated sexuality from its long imprisoned morals, who could possibly conceive the ironic enslavement the sexual revolution would create? It is an absolute bondage. Bondage to objectification, bondage to exploitation, bondage to degradation, bondage to predation. Sex is our God and oh, how cruel is this God. Like all idolatry, it is destined to collapse, leaving untold victims in the rubble of its own destruction. And the saddest stories of its destruction, I believe, are being told by what is commonly referred to as the Me Too movement. For those unfamiliar, Me Too is a social media hashtag used over the past couple years by those coming forward, courageously coming forward with their stories of abuse, sharing them, tagging them with Me Too, and it has led to a flood of revelations that no longer affords our culture the convenience of ignorance or indifference. The movement arose at the same time of Hefner's death. And this irony was not lost on me. So this is what I wrote publicly. It is as if the death of Hugh Hefner has broken a spell that has long imprisoned our society. The king of sexual predation is dead. And the captives of the kingdom are finally free to tell their story. And I say, let the stories come. Let them all come out. This wickedness so transcends our normal divides that the whataboutism game we play, when I say whataboutism game we play, it's, the, it's this thing we do in our culture where if, if something happens in our tribe, we're, we, we quickly say, yeah, but what about them? This, is, this just so transcends our divides that that game is laughable. I say, no matter your tribe, your tribe is guilty. So let every attempt to deflect or defend come to an end and let us instead listen and learn from the courage of the abused. They are our prophets now with voices that will no longer allow us to hide or ignore this epidemic. Indeed, the long overdue purge has begun and may it not relent until every hidden darkness faces the light of justice May the abused be emboldened to expose the truth, and may abusers tremble that their exposure is near. May the broken find healing, the contrite find forgiveness, and may God yet have mercy on our perverse culture of which we all stand guilty. When we in the 21st century American context hear the Apostle Peter say, save yourself from this crooked generation That has to be at the top of our list. This epidemic must be priority number one of the crookedness we must renounce. And I do mean we. When I say that this wickedness transcends our normal divides, I mean that. It is so pervasive that nobody is exempt from culpability. Liberals have been exposed, conservatives have been exposed, the rich have been exposed, the poor have been exposed, 
every ethnicity, every vocation, every level of education, and yes, sadly, every single religious tradition, including Christianity, which has given rise to the subsequent hashtag church to movement of which a year ago TCPC was tagged. We need not spend time fixating on the sexual indiscretions of any group with so much repentance to be done in our midst. Save yourselves, brothers and sisters, from this crooked generation. It begins with an individual call of every single one of us to live out a counterculture identity that repudiates with every fiber of our being the sexual exploitation and abuse in our day and age. And if you say, I haven't done anything wrong, then heed the words of your master and his radical sexual ethic. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at another with lustful intent, has already committed adultery in their heart. Do not so easily assume that you are not complicit in this crooked generation of sexual exploitation. And there is one area of complicity, as I prayed and studied and wrote this week, that I felt led this morning to press in on, because I think it is the area where the church is absolutely complicit, if not the worst demographic. Do you know what is the training ground of sexual abuse in our age? Pornography. It is literally a liturgy of exploitation. Discipling us in the ways of objectification turning us into sexual, ravenous sexual consumers that view others not as noble image bearers of God, but as degraded objects of gratification. And beyond what it does to you is the horror of what it does systemically to our world. It is the fuel behind abuse, assault, and yes, even human trafficking. Every click on what may seem to be a harmless little secret is a resounding amen to sexual abuse and human trafficking. It is your amen. Let it be so. And guess what part of our country, statistically year after year after year, consumes the most pornography? The Bible Belt. And it's not even close. 47% of Christians' homes in America report pornography as a major issue in their family. 56% of marriages in the church that end in divorce cite pornography usage as the contributing factor. 68% of church-going men, 33% of church-going women, and 51% of pastors admit to regular pornography usage. The church is fueling the pornography industry, which in turn is fueling a culture of exploitation, which in turn is fueling countless stories, hashtag me too. Beyond porn. Every lustful glance is someone as though they were an object for your own personal gratification. Every crude sexual joke told or laughed at. Every roll of the eyes at a survivor's story. 
Every cynical, impatient, come on, let's get over this whole Me Too drama. All of it is complicity within a crooked generation of sexual abuse. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, metaphorically speaking, whatever it takes to save yourself from this evil. And we are here to help. I know how the cycle of porn and sexual misconduct works. Come to church, preacher shame the heck out of you, which drives you back to the very source of comfort, your cruel lover, your computer screen, which leads to more shame, which leads to more porn and more shame and more porn, but we don't just want to shame you into another cycle. We want to help you break the cycle, but I am here to tell you, you cannot do it alone. Let us help you save yourself from this crooked generation. You need community, which brings me to my second point. We are here not just as a counter-identity, living as countercultural individuals, but a counter-institution. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that, added that day about 3,000 souls. Now this verse is often interpreted through the lens of individual salvation, as it should be. Wow, 3,000 souls saved. Incredible. But in the thrust of the story, particularly in redemptive history, this is to be viewed less as the new birth of 3,000 individuals and more as the new birth of a new community. This is the beginning of this thing we call church. Notice the way it's phrased. Those who received his word were baptized. The significance of that cannot be overstated. For the first time, we see the sign of the new covenant people administered. Up until this point in the story, God's people were marked by the sign of circumcision. And now a new people has emerged on the day of Pentecost, marked by the new sign of baptism, Christ's finished work. Baptism is the inauguration right into the new family of God. And so what we are witnessing here is the inception of an institution a new community, soon to be known as the ecclesia, literally the called out ones. Save yourself from this crooked generation, the called out ones. Ecclesia in the ancient world was associated with a called out political assembly, but in the New Testament community they took it upon themselves and that is not a coincidence. As we will see in the book of Acts, this community of baptized did not view themselves as a collection of individual saved souls waiting to go to heaven, but literally as a rival culture seeking to upend the culture of their time. Not by force, but by ethics, specifically the ethic of love. So the idea is this, a fellowship of people Bearing a countercultural identity, bound together covenantally through baptism, thus creating an entire countercultural community. It's the difference between individual and institutional force. You by yourself living counterculturally is significant, 
but nothing compared to 3,000 together living out a countercultural identity. That's why God's plan is not you, it's y'all. The ecclesia. And so as we consider application of this issue, we don't need to consider it merely from an individual perspective, but even more so the the text is asking us to consider it from an institutional perspective. That is to say, how is the baptized collective doing with this issue of our time? In many ways, that question is much more important than the one from my first point. Because institutions are far more influential than individuals. Put it this way. Individual failures can be overcome by institutional faithfulness. That is to say, if the institution is healthy, then it is more than capable of handling and correcting any and all individual failures. But if the institution itself is failing, if it is unhealthy, then not only can it not handle individual failures, it enables and even perpetuates more failure. Simply put, institutions lead and form individuals, not the other way around. So on the day of Pentecost, a new institution called the church was born. And throughout the centuries, the church, as the head of the church, Jesus Christ promised, the church has indeed overcome. But that does not mean that the church does not need to be occasionally rebuked or corrected. We are, after all, Protestants, protest ants. And so we now consider application from an institutional horizon and ask ourselves where does the institution need to be rebuked? And it seems to me very obvious, and certainly if you get out of our bubble and talk to the watching world, they will tell you this is the issue of church rebuke in our age. We thought naively, perhaps even arrogantly, that this was a Catholic institution problem. It is not. What we have seen over the past years is that this is just as much a Protestant issue. No denomination, no tradition exempt, church-wide, worldwide, whole-scale, institutional failure. It's a real problem. And I'm sorry. I got into the specifics between services, my analysis of these institutional failures and what we can do about it. But here now, I believe it is enough to just admit it. People are just so tired of churches with their excuses and cover-ups and deflecting and blaming and all these other things. And if this past year has taught me anything, it is the healing power of institutional contrition. Just a church saying it happened, we admit it, and we're sorry brought so much healing. We need to do more, but we must not do less. So, Recognizing that I am one preacher of one church, even still, 
If you are here or if you are listening online and you are sexually harmed by the very institution God ordained to protect the vulnerable, particularly if you are sexually harmed by this institution ordained to protect the vulnerable, I, as a minister within that very institution, want to say to you, I am sorry and plead for your forgiveness. It is not your fault. It is our fault. There is a lot more work to do. And we have pledged already to do that work. But it does start with just, I am so sorry. And then it leads to one earnest request and plea. Do not hold the sins of the church against the Savior of this church. I understand that temptation. The church of Jesus Christ harmed you, therefore you're done with Jesus Christ. That connection makes sense and I get it. I know for a fact that because of what Taze Creek Presbyterian Church did to some people, some people want nothing to do with Jesus, the one we worship. And perhaps you are one of those listening right now. My humble plea, request, before you completely throw in the towel on Jesus, is that you pick up your Bible one more time. And you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you ask yourself whether Jesus, not his followers, his followers are what they are in the Gospels, Absolute failures. Not as followers. Instead, whether Jesus is not still beautiful to your wounded soul. I cannot in good conscience commend his followers to you. I can, without a moment's hesitation, commend him to you. So I ask you, to rediscover Jesus and view him not through the followers conduct but through the scripture see him rise up at the beginning of his ministry and proclaim the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover of sight of to the blind, to set to liberty those who are oppressed, that captives, those oppressed, that includes sexual captives, sexual abuse, oppression. Translation, at the very beginning of his ministry, I'm here to heal the crooked world. And watch him as he does it. See him give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and movement to the paralyzed and cleansing to the leprous and dignity to the prostitutes and even life to the dead. See him for what he is, this fount of restoration from the crookedness of this world. Yes, including the sexual brokenness of their day. But most of all, see his wounds. Nobody knows the feeling of unjust, undeserved abuse like Jesus. What happened to you should not have happened to you. Something that should never have happened to Jesus happened to him. See him familiar with your suffering and acquainted with your grief. And then hear his promises. By these wounds, you are healed. Jesus did not only die to forgive those who have sinned. 
He died to heal those who have been sinned against. We all need his forgiveness. And we all need his healing. So yes, bring your personal failures to the cross to be forgiven. But bring also your wounds to your wounded Savior for his healing. And he will never, ever fail you. People will. Not just Christians, by the way. Good luck finding any institution that will not harm you. Everyone will fail you, but he will not. He is faithful. Others will wound you. He will heal you. Others may even destroy and ruin your life, but he will resurrect you. And when he does, this is the picture we are given. What began in Acts 2 as 3,000 ends in countless multitudes in Revelation 21. And this is what we are told. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from every eye. What a promise to the abused in their lifetime of tears. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. You say, how could that be? Here's why. For the former things have passed away. We're used to that language when it comes to the loss of loved ones. They pass away. Here, your abuse has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That means it never happened. I make all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, beloved, we have proven time and again that we are indeed not trustworthy and true. This church has proven to the outside world that this church is not trustworthy and true. But our hope is not that we are such. Our only hope, and I believe your only hope, is that these words and this Jesus are trustworthy And true. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that there is nothing this world can do to us that you cannot undo. There is no sin that we can commit that you cannot forgive. And this table now is a living demonstration of that truth. I pray that in a very tangible way, those, particularly those hurting, those who have been abused, would feel the healing presence of your love as we now partake in your mysterious sacrament. Join us, fellowship with us, be with us, comfort us, sustain us, fill us, give us what we need. And what we need is you. In Jesus' name, amen.